Hey everyone, and welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we'll be interviewing people from around the base and learning about them, as well as their keys to success. Today on the show, we are talking to Lieutenant Colonel McCarthy, the commander of the Healthcare Operations Squadron. Sir, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate you... Uh, allowing me this time to sit down and talk to me and kind of interview you and uh, get people from Fairchild to, to know your story and some of the tips that you have for, for leadership and for success. You've always done a great job helping me out uh, for the classes, the professional development classes that I put on. And in those classes, what I noticed is that you always seem to be a really deep thinker and kind of can really articulate a point, kind of dive down into the meat and potatoes of things really well. I'm not trying to set you up too far here, but uh, I appreciate that. I always wonder if uh, what I'm saying makes sense, so that's uh, that's reassuring to hear. It it is, and uh, that's kind of I was I really wanted to be able to get a chance. So before I get out of the seat, there, I wanted to make sure I sit down with several people and, and talk with you. Where are you heading now? Uh, December 9th, I'm going back to AMXS. Okay. So okay. Uh, it's a, a three-year sabbatical, that I mm-hmm. call it, that we get, and then I got to... Well, you did a great job with it. I appreciate you doing that. Well, thank there. you, sir. I really appreciate it. So, before we get into some of the leadership stuff, kind of, how did you get here? Uh, what what prompted you to join the Air Force? Kind of kind of lead us down that whole path, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so, I um, I grew up in, in Houston and kind of public school education, kind of lower to lower middle class upbringing, depending on which time frame of my life. And then went to college and got a degree in psychology. Really, in hindsight, at the time, I don't know why I did that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think you end up where you're supposed to end up. But, you know, there wasn't a grand plan at that point. Um, it was interesting to me. I had some friends who were in the classes. And, um, you know, when you graduate with a degree in psychology, you can go to grad school or you can do something that pays minimum wage. So um, I had, I really kind of, in a lot of ways, when I look back on that time of my life, just stumbled through a bunch of things and really opportunities opened up and I got lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, but I had an opportunity to go to a, a good graduate school um, for social work, not psychology, but okay. it, it kind of moved me down that path. They're very similar disciplines, especially in their clinical application. And so I, I had... Uh, really a family friend say, Hey, this is where you're at with your life. This is what you should come do. And I can help you make that happen. And so I kind of jumped on that opportunity, moved to New York city, uh, went to grad school at Fordham university, which is right on central park in New York city. It was, yeah, it was, a it was a really interesting place to live as kind of a young single 20 something and go to school. So it was an exciting time. And so I graduated, um, and kind of, as I was graduating, uh, you're kind of looking forward and, okay, I've got crippling student loan debt. What am I going to do to kind of get a job and, and right. do something that's useful? Reality kind of hits you at that point. <laughs> it does, for sure. And, at the, you know, there was, a, there was a patriotic element to, you know, wanting to serve. And I really um, was also young and single and adventurous. And the idea of living overseas oh, was yeah. exciting to yep. me. And being a unilingual therapist where, you know, the only way you make your money is by talking to people. The only way I was going to live overseas is really with the air force. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I started looking into, um, to the services. I actually, the air force was my last stop. I went by the army and, um, they said you had to have two years after graduate school before they would look at you. The Navy okay. didn't even have social workers at the time. And again, I was kind of just stumbling through all this. It wasn't part of a grand plan. Uh, but I walked into an air force recruiter's office and he said, have I got a deal for you. They had just started and uh, a social work internship program, which took people right out of grad school and put you into a year of internship. Okay. And so um, I was great. I was part of that first class. Came into the Air Force. Um, my first day on active duty after COT, you know, commissioned officer training. Right. right. I remember well because it was my birthday. So it was September 4th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so I was at Andrews Air Force Base. So I did maybe a week of in processing. Um, and I remember the morning of September 11th, I was supposed to wake up and me and one of my friends in the internship class were ahead on our in-processing and really didn't have anything to do. So we were going to go down to the mall and sightsee in D.C. Right. Uh, so I got a call that morning. It, it obviously changed the plans. And so really the very, very first wow. thing I did in the Air Force was um, the Pentagon response as a mental health first responder. Wow. Wow. 
do you want to get into that at all? Or we can yeah. certainly. That was a, a really interesting time. You know, the one story that I tell that kind of scopes it for me. Um, I got a call from my boss and said, "Hey, you know, you're not doing your internship thing anymore. Tomorrow morning, you need to report down to the um, the they had set up a, the Pentagon Family Assistance Center for all the the family members of the people who were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he this it was a uh, my colonel who was over at Andrews said uh, you need to report down to the, uh, the double tree in Pentagon city. There's an army colonel there who will meet you and tell you what to do. Okay. And so I showed up there in the morning, September 12th, and this army colonel was there and uh, he said, just go into that room over there. And so I walked in and it was a really, really big ballroom, like, you know, probably 500 seats all full. And so I just went in and found a seat and sat down and an army three star who was in charge of this place. I hadn't met yet. Uh, mm-hmm. general van Alstein stood up and started talking about what they were doing to recover remains, about um, what they were doing to ensure family members received their benefits, and just about all the processes that were going on. And it occurred to me in that moment, I looked around, everybody in the room had lost an immediate relative the day before. So you're just in there as a mental health provider, brand new mental health provider, kind of way over your head. And that was was an overwhelming experience and kind of not what I expected for my first kind of role in the Air Force. So it was, uh, it was definitely formative. Yeah, it's, it's not supposed to work out that way. No, it's supposed to... No. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, the other, the other part of me says it worked out really the way it should. I, I look back on that time, and I remember really clearly everybody that I knew saying, I wish I could do something. I wish I could help. Where should I go? And kind of wanting to be involved. I mean, that was, that was a really interesting time in our nation's history. And in a lot of ways, I was as in the middle of it as I could possibly be. So... Yeah, you know, maybe it was exactly the way it was supposed to work out. It certainly, framed my career going forward in a very different way than kind of the the standard internship that I was expecting would have. Yeah, you. I would imagine that. I mean, that that definitely solidifies patriotism, right. serving, right? You know, it's, and purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay, so after that experience, right? So we we did that for a couple of months, and then we went back into the routine of the the internship that we were expected to do, which really is they teach you all the, the functions that a mental health officer performs. And Andrews okay. is a big uh, MTF, so there, there's a lot of capabilities there. Um, so I completed that. That was a nine-month internship. And then I PCS to Fairchild, did kind of element-level stuff, the family advocacy program, the ADAP program, the mental health clinic, uh, PCS to... Patrick from here. So I like the long PCSs, Andrews to Fairchild, Fairchild to Patrick. So East Coast to West Coast, back to back. Yeah. Uh, Patrick was obviously wonderful. You know, got to play with Manatee and watch space shuttles launch. And oh, man. Did some, um, some cool work up at the um, at Cape Canaveral with their traumatic response team. Um, that, that was a neat partnership. Um, so got a lot of really good training while I was there. Did element level stuff, ran several programs there. And then um, applied for uh, a PhD fellowship through the Air Force Institute of Technology. Um, And fortunately, yeah, that was spectacular. So I got picked up for a PhD fellowship and did that at the University of Texas for three years. So that was an amazing opportunity to just be back in the civilian world as an active duty member. Just focused. My job was to do my PhD. Um, So I, I did that, studied, just really looked at. Uh, how effective our post-deployment health reassessment is in identifying uh, the mental health kind of problems, uh, depression, post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, published that dissertation. And then from there, uh, went to air staff and was the Air Force Suicide Prevention Program Manager for a couple of years. Wow. Um, so did some interesting work there, wrote a lot of policy, um, a lot of it that's still used today. It was kind of interesting when the, uh, the tactical pause for resiliency came out. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the checklists that people were kind of dusting off I had written back in 2011 2012 well that's um, kind of a good feeling then that you know for sure still it, it really was like it really was um, and a lot of the um, we did a lot of work on we were pretty unsophisticated at the time on messaging suicide prevention in a safe way um, and so a lot of the the public affairs guidance and a lot of the things that roll out uh, even at a DoD level, uh, regarding just talking about that topic in a way that doesn't make the problem worse really came out of that period. Um, and it was interesting, too, because all the services have suicide prevention program managers, just a lot of working groups that you participate in. You get to meet a lot of tri-service 
folks, and it was uh, it was a really positive experience. Um, That's, it's good to know that as a DOD, the wagons are being circled around uh, the topic. We actually, um, up until 2011, just had the three service suicide prevention offices, and there was no OSD office. But in 2011, while I was there, they they stood up an OSD office of suicide prevention to you know share best practices and get some crosstalk and establish some kind of baseline. Great. Um, this is how we do business. Uh, so there is that umbrella, and, and for good and for bad, you know, there's the extra levels of bureaucracy always come with downside. Um, but I do think mm. that the the crosstalk that's facilitated between the services is value added for sure. Kind of makes makes some of that bureaucracy palatable. Right. Right. <laughs> For sure. So from there, I did uh, consecutive flight commands. I was a flight commander at Shepard and a flight commander at Joint Base Hammondorf Richardson. Okay. Um, and then I applied for a squadron command and was lucky enough to get hired back here, which is really where I wanted to end up. My wife is from here. Her family is still from oh, here. So nice. it was a very positive experience to come back here and the squadron's been great. Did you guys meet on your first round? We did, actually. I, um, I was volunteering for uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, like the school-based Big Brothers Big Sisters, and she was a teacher at the time at Blair Elementary, which has since been torn down, oh. and she opened <laughs> up um, Anderson. She, she was there, okay. um, and so my little brother was one of her students and was in the class, and so I got to know her in that way, and then I deployed. And uh, wanted to stay in touch with him, and so she agreed that I could email her, and she would pass along the emails to my little brother. And so she did that for me and helped me maintain that relationship and would often kind of reply to my emails. And so we struck up a side conversation, and that's really how that started. That's awesome. It was. It was, it was really neat. That's one thing that uh, I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, we were talking about our boldest decisions in life. And when it came down to it for me, and I'd be interested to hear what your response is, it was joining the Air Force. Mm -hmm. There's no part of my life that has not been affected dramatically by that one decision. No doubt. So you found a wife, right? (laughs) For sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, your whole life is different and your children's whole lives are different. That's true too. Yeah. Yeah. And your parents' whole lives are different. I mean, my... My wife, I don't think that the idea that she was ever going to move outside of, you know, the 20 mile radius um, had occurred to her before we started dating. And so it didn't only change my life and hers, but her parents had to say goodbye to their daughter and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't get to live in the same zip code as their grandchildren do. And yeah, it impacts every every aspect of your life for sure. Nice. What? Are you looking at hanging it up after this or are you? No, no, I'm not going to be eligible to hang it up after this. So, um, you know, we're just at a place right now where you're starting to think about what's next and um, starting to talk to the people who make those decisions. I I, honestly, my top priority for my next assignment, my daughter is a freshman in high school this year and I'm going to be in the zone for 06, which prompts a move um, in 21. So we're really looking at a, a possibility where she will have to attend three high schools. Wow. Which, yeah, that, so my top priority is finding an assignment where I can stay for three years. That's a, is that somewhat feasible? In it's feasible in certain places. I mean, in Washington, DC, there's a lot of jobs for 05s and 06s. And so, gotcha. um, and there's a couple of other places that maybe we can make that happen, but, um, that really is the top priority and, and kind of the job and the career advancement can wait until the next job. Right. Well, I mean, that, that is a priority. This is a temporary gig, it is. right? It is for sure. And my <clears throat> children are incredible Air Force kids. Um, they're super supportive. They're into it. Um, but I, the idea of my daughter going to three high schools is, makes me kind of sick to my stomach. So, Yeah, I, I don't blame it. I don't blame it. Okay, so we have some questions here about mm-hmm. more on the leadership side since... This is kind of not only get to know people, but also your perspectives on leadership. So how do you define success? Yeah, I mean, to me, whenever somebody asks me to define my successes, the first thing that leaps to mind is the success of the airmen that I've worked with. I, um, and, you know, and there's some really concrete examples that maybe are good microcosms. But when I was a flight commander at Shepard, we really did focus on our enlisted professional development. And we had six consecutive senior airmen who went to ALS, who won Commandant or Levito. And so that, I mean, that wasn't a coincidence. That was, and you know, those NCOs went on to great things and they're great people. 
Um, here we've had we had one board, uh, one wing board, where there were six below the zone stripes to give, and this squadron won three of them away the top three packages. And wow. every below the zone board that I have been here for, we've gotten a stripe, including we gave one yesterday. So nice. those those are for me success, especially since I've gotten to the flight level and the, the, the squadron level, it's about the people who work for you being successful, creating and creating an environment where the people who work in your organization can succeed. And there's some really conspicuous measures of that, like level toe awards and like below the zone right. and all the things that lead up to that, obviously that go into that package. But those, those are kind of just the conspicuous recognition of these people worked in an environment where they could succeed. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. You have to have that framework. It could be, you know, some airman that's just killing it. But if that environment isn't right, right. it's it's just right. not going to happen. Yes, yeah. I, uh, I I talk to all of the flight commanders and flight chiefs, and maybe this is an odd way to frame it, but I think of you know just in in an environment, um, in any environment, there are a couple of kind of key indicators that you can just look at, and it will tell you about the health of that environment. Like if you're talking, I scuba dive, and so if you're talking about like a, a reef. If you mm-hmm. see a bunch of like sharks, turtles, like apex predators and big mammals, you don't have to look any farther. That's a healthy environment. You just know it is. You don't have to drill down <clears throat> a healthy environment. And for me in the Air Force, it's two and three stripe airmen. If those guys are succeeding and they're getting awards and recognition and they're happy, it's a happy environment. It's a healthy environment. You don't even really have to look at what's going on in that flight. You know yeah. that it is a healthy environment. That's my belief. Um, I'm not sure if it's right or not, but that's kind of what I tell those folks. And I think if you've got, you know, in the medical sense, providers, maybe in the ops group pilots who are really drilled down and worried about the success and professional development of your two-stripe airmen, your senior airmen, uh, the other stuff, it, you don't have to worry about it. That, you, that is the perfect uh, key performance indicator right there. You right. know, that's right. I love it. What do you think has made you successful? That's a that's a tough question that has a lot of facets to it. There's a lot of complexity there. And I think if you want to boil it down and be simple, uh, or boil it down to something that's kind of simple, I'm a pretty flexible person. Like I really believe, and I, like I say to my wife all the time, I can work for anybody. It really doesn't matter what my boss's style is. And I've had lots of them. And I've had bosses who are really difficult and who, you know, their preferred mechanism of communicating was yelling and pointing and ranting and other folks who were super fluid and gave almost no direction. But to me, there's an internal locus of control um, mm-hmm. that is that I don't know if I'm wired that way or if I've just developed it because of my profession or, or what, but I have a lot of control over what's going on around me, regardless of my boss's behavior and regardless of my subordinate's behavior. Um, a lot of control over the attitude that I bring to it, a lot of control over the emotions that I feel about it, a lot of control over the thoughts that are present, and a lot of control over the behaviors that I bring to whatever the problem is. I'm still completely capable of operating, making decisions, and moving out. And if the decision's wrong, it's not something that I need to personalize, and I don't. I mean, I I don't want to sound trite and you know, there's a lot of talk about emotional intelligence, but I think I'm right. good at that. I think I'm pretty deliberate with the emotions that I express. Um, and I think I'm pretty thoughtful about what my emotions are and why they are that way. And if they're not at a place that's going to get me to optimal performance, I'm pretty good at changing them. And a lot of that I think mm-hmm. is my profession. I mean, I've spent 15 <laughs> years sitting down with people talking to them about the thoughts that are in their head and, how that impacts their ability to be comfortable in their own skin and how that impacts their ability to be successful um, in the workplace, in relationships. And so I think I've internalized a lot of those lessons. And I, you know, I tell, I've talked to my mental health flight commander a number of times, you know, I don't think I'm allowed to have a cognitive distortion as the term we use in the field, but unhealthy thoughts. I'm not allowed to make thinking errors. It's my, I have no credibility as a mental health provider if I engage in thinking errors. If I'm doing yeah, it, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that the Air Force has employed me for up until this job is to be the subject matter expert on being comfortable in your own skin, on thinking in a way that's healthy. So I'm not entitled to, to not do those things. Uh, otherwise, I'm not doing my job. 
Uh, I'm not entitled to not get along with others because my job is to teach people how to manage workplace conflict. So, so I take that fairly seriously. Um, and it's good for me, I think, um, because there's not a lot that I take home. There's not a lot that I internalize because really it's all up to me. I, I have an internal locus of control pretty much across the board. Uh, whether somebody's yelling and screaming at me and just can't stand me, or whether somebody's telling me that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, really doesn't have anything to do with me. It's true. It's all others' perception. It's all them. Yeah. Wow. That we could probably talk for a couple hours about that, but we won't. So okay. <laughs> we can go wherever you want. <laughs> wow. That's that's pretty profound, and I mean, it makes perfect sense, like you said, with your profession. Now. Because you've been doing it so long, that, that muscle has to be exercised pretty well, and it's probably gotten a lot easier, I no would doubt. imagine. No doubt. For sure. Um, and, and, you know, it didn't occur to me for a long time that uh, I needed to practice what I preach to be credible. <laughs> I, uh, and I tell this story to some of my, my patients um, who will come in, and they'll talk about either their wife you know, said something or did something or their boss did, and they just know what that person is thinking, and they're so pissed about it. You know, that that automatic thought that pops into your head that makes you super uncomfortable and it's the first thing that pops in there most of the time when there's conflict um, usually isn't right, but it feels so true. <laughs> um, I tell this story about my marriage. My, my wife and I, um, when I turned 40, I told her I want a boat. When I was a kid, my family had one. It was a really important thing in our family and I wanted to have that with my kids. Um, and she's like, yeah, sure, cool, go do that. And was super supportive. And as soon as I got it, um, I just got in my mind this little thing that she hated the boat and just didn't like it. And so we would go out on it and we'd spend all our weekends and she would post pictures of the kids on Facebook and it was great. But I just had in my head that she hated the boat and didn't like being out there. And she would make little comments that supported that perspective. Like, oh, you know, when I went out on a boat as a kid, we didn't spend all day. We'd go out, we'd come back and the way we do it is exhausting and there were times that things would go wrong, like things would break. or right. And she would always ask me, still glad we got the boat? And I would hear that as her just needling me a little bit. So one day we went out and we just had a disastrous day. We didn't even get the boat in the water. Everything went oh, wrong wow. and it just all went wrong. And so we got home and what did she say? Still glad we got the boat. And so I blew up and picked a fight with her. And I was like, I know you hate the boat and just made a fool of myself. And fortunately, she laughed at me. I was like, honey, I love the boat. It is what our family does together. The children love it. I go out with you on it all the time. I post pictures. I smile when I'm out there. I've never said, no, we can't go out when you say, hey, let's go out on the boat. Why on earth would you think that I hate the boat? And everything she said was right. But if I'm being completely honest, still, she hates the boat feels more true. I know it's not. <laughs> but it's a feeling. And feelings aren't facts. Feelings just pop in there. And those automatic thoughts just pop in there, but you cannot believe everything that you think and everything that you feel doesn't make it true. And so I have to deliberately remind myself that she gave me permission to buy the boat and she goes out with me on the boat all the time. And she does post pictures of the kids on Facebook on the boat. And she does talk to her family about how we had such a great time on the lake. And so our brains are not always our best friends and our feelings are not always a true guide to success at all. And I, I use that example with my patients all the time because I could choose to be really resentful to my wife and I could choose to take this thing which is a great experience for my whole family and harbor resentments about it. And that wouldn't make me more successful in my marriage and it wouldn't make me a better dad and it wouldn't improve my quality of life at all. But it feels really true inside. Um, and so that's a hard thing for folks to do and I benefited, I think, from having literally hundreds, maybe thousands of patients come in and share super similar stories. Mm -hmm. And I could reflect on it and say, well, that's dumb. You shouldn't feel that way. That doesn't help anything. Uh, that's not a helpful feeling to frame my own feelings and thoughts. Wow. Yeah. You, I have about a 35, 40 minute commute each way. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not careful, what I've learned recently is that, you know, we're designed to solve problems, not necessarily to be happy. Right. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir here, right. but um, if I am intentional about that commute, I can make it far more beneficial right. than if I'm just, for me, listening to music is not right. very productive. So then those little voices start talking crap about, yep. and that everything resentment that starts day, to, you know, yes. you know, it start. you can kind of, you can really build a case to do whatever, to no support whatever topic or whatever, you know, your stance is on. No and, doubt. 
Yeah, so, people yeah. bring a lot of assumptions about their internal dialogue that are just false. Um, like it represents what you really believe. Like it's you. Like it. Uh, there's a lot of things about the internal dialogue that people just assume without scrutinizing. Because a lot of times in therapy, somebody will just say outside what they've been thinking all day in their car, and they laugh at it because it's so absurd. Um, but but we we uh, we let that voice really just run instead of being deliberate about our own internal dialogue and taking the wheel and being deliberate about your own thought process. They're just kind of passive bystanders to that voice in their head and just yeah. let it go wherever they want and believe it. And it's a problem. And you, know, you said we're designed to solve problems. I think it's even more than that. You know, if you kind of look at why we have that internal dialogue and why we're set up the way we're set up, it's really to identify threats. And it's really, you right. know, from right. an evolutionary perspective, there were a lot of threats in the environment when we developed all these skills there's not many threats in the environment now so when we get stressed our minds go to crazy places about how terrible things are going to be and we can imagine the sky is falling when in most people's lives the worst case scenario has occurred zero maybe one time and yeah. the most common scenario is that outcomes are neutral they're not a great thing they're not a terrible thing they're just something that's a total bag of nothing it just happens in your life. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what drives you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not sure. And so I've got a, a bias in that question. And I think that drive in a lot of ways, like IQ is intrinsic. You're born with this, like I know driven people and mm -hmm. they're just wired that way. And I know people who are just not driven at all. They're smart, but they're just not driven and you get super frustrated with them. You're like, why don't you just try? And you do therapy with them. But you know, and people don't, understand that and people will judge you for not being driven they won't like if, if you're just not smart people get that but right. people have the hardest time wrapping their brain around why somebody's not driven because they think you can choose to be driven they know you can't choose to be smart but they think you can choose to have drive and i'm not sure that's true so i just want to frame the question okay with, with that belief <laughs> uh, i mean really what drives me is my family um, okay. it's my wife and my kids and that's kind of how i frame everything around work i tell my you know my squadron if you want to know what I want when you answer the phone, just assume it's my wife on the line there and I'm standing over your shoulder. If you have to admonish an airman, that's okay. You have to do that. But admonish them as if they're one of my kids and I'm standing there watching you. You know, you need to point them in the right direction, but you better not cuss at them. You better not make them feel bad about themselves. You better not. And, you know, making sure that my kids are doing everything I can to make sure that my kids are well-adjusted, productive folks who are provided for and have an opportunity to be successful as adults is what drives me. And so to me, what I do at work needs to be esteemable because they watch and they learn what it means to be professional, to have a good work ethic, to be ethical is by watching my wife and I. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there's absolutely not even a, a number two or a number three on that list. My family is my why. And, you know, you generalize that to the airmen who work with you because they have families and they are sacred valuable, loved people that need to be taken care of and you know, mm -hmm. their families have entrusted their well-being to the Air Force and to me as an organizational leader. So it's my family and then my extended family and I, I, I take that responsibility seriously too. And I, it goes back yeah. to what we talked about before, especially those kind of young folks who have no power in organization and kind of no experience adulting, um, those two and three striped airmen who we have been entrusted by our nation to develop and to productive, well-adjusted people who are going to be successful. Well, in the Air Force culture, I mean, those are, those are, in my personal opinion, probably the biggest formative years. Yeah. You know, once you become an NCO, yeah, there's definitely some change that happens. Senior NCO, definitely some things that happen. But as a young airman, if you don't have that foundation. Right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hard place to be. And I remember being there. I wasn't in the Air Force, but I was working, you know, inside hospitals. Um, you know, the difference between an airman and an NCO in some cases, it's absolutely nothing. Like they they right. can be exactly the same age, be in the Air Force exactly the same amount of time, have the same amount of experience, but the power disparity between them is crazy. And that can lead to all kinds of bad things. We saw that um, at Lackland. We've seen that in a couple mm -hmm. of places. And so being, and, and, and they're bright and they're talented and they're motivated, being in that situation where you have all this potential and so little power and, and, and people who don't have any more smarts or experience or potential than you who get to kind of wield power above you and kind of have a, a big influence on your success or lack thereof 
it's a difficult place to be. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think the greatest lesson that you've learned is? Um, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. So I'm going to, I'm going to maybe, I don't know, I'll share this insight. When I was 27, and I can remember the day really clearly, um, I was walking around, I was in grad school, and I was kind of dealing with some of that crushing debt that I had. Gotcha. Yep. Um, and just some dumb decisions that I'd made. It was a difficult time in my life with my, my family, my interpersonal relationships, my finances. I was in school, didn't know what my future looked like. And I was just looking back on a lot of the decisions that I'd made, and I was beating myself up for it. I was going, so stupid, the decisions I made in my early 20s. And I realized, I flashed back to a time, and I can remember this really clearly too, like in fourth grade, I looked back at myself in kindergarten and first grade and thought, what a stupid kid I was. And then I kind of played that forward, and I could remember in middle school thinking about myself in elementary school and what a dumb kid I was. And I played that all the way up to 27. And the insight that I gained is we're all just dumb kids. I, to this day, I know that when I'm in my 50s and 60s and I look back, or even in my next job, and I look back on what I did as a squadron commander, I'm going to be embarrassed by some of it, and I'm going to fret about some of it, and I'm going to say how dumb I was, because I'm just a dumb kid. I don't have this life figured out. I don't have this world figured out. I'm not supposed to. And so is everybody else around me. We're a bunch of dumb kids trying to figure this thing out. Right. And we right. take ourselves really seriously. And, you know, when you reach a certain age and you reach a certain station, people think you're supposed to be mature and have things figured out and have the answers, but we don't. And that's been really helpful for me moving forward. I've made tons of mistakes at every level of my Air Force career. I've made tons of mistakes at every stage of parenting. I've made tons of mistakes in my marriage daily because I'm a dumb kid and I, I right. don't know and I try to learn from it. And when I do, I'm, you know, I'm genuinely sorry, but I've kind of given up on beating myself up and, and kind of going with that thought that pops into your head about how you should have known better and you should be somewhere different because there were decisions that should have been made in your past that mm -hmm. would have gotten you to this place that you're supposed to be. That's all made up and it's all counterproductive and it's all stuff that diminishes your quality of life. I, I'm a dumb kid and, I, and, and that is helpful for me. So just that thought of being able to go back to that initial reflection is enough because I'm sure that on a continual basis, those things pop up and you're like, oh man, ah, those regrets. Done, yep. And so is it just going back to that initial reflection? You're like, oh yeah, this is, this is just how it works. Is that kind of what puts well, it you is. I mean, at, like, at every phase in my life up until that kind of epiphany that I had at 27, I realized I looked back at myself and was frustrated with what a dumb kid I was then, but didn't realize that the phase I was in then, I was still a dumb kid and I was going to look back on it. And so I've just kind of embraced that. I don't expect, I know that I don't have it figured out. I know that gotcha. three or four years from now, I'm going to look back on every aspect of my life and say, boy, you should have known better than that. And that thought's not true. I shouldn't have learned better than, I shouldn't have known better. That was how I learned. Right. And I shouldn't have known better as an elementary school and I shouldn't have known better as a 27 year old. That was the process of my life that got me to here. And I learned a lot on the way. And I don't know everything. I'm going to learn a lot on the way to 50 and to 60 and as long as I'm on this earth. But the idea that I should have known better and that I made the wrong decision is dumb. I love that you said that. that I think that will be so refreshing for a lot of people to hear. I hope so. No. It, it was helpful for me. to, And, and I've, I've embraced it. I, I just I don't really go there anymore. I, I totally believe that today at 46, sitting in the squadron commander's office, I'm really just a dumb kid. Yeah. Trying as best as you can, knowing that it's... None of us are perfect. Yeah. Yep. What are you learning right now? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm learning a lot. So, you know, you have your deox, and I, I do some things in the squadron to get feedback. And as a squadron commander, and it's true, certainly up and down the chain, but people see you much more. The people in this organization view me more as a squadron commander than they do as Mike, who goes home to his wife, Bree, and parents his two children imperfectly. Um, and so... You're not always viewed as a human being by this, and, and not by your kids. You know, they see you as dad who should have all the answers. Um, That's a good point, too. And so a lot of the feedback that you get is not about you, the person. It's about your office. Um, and oh. it doesn't reflect on the quality of person you are. And sometimes it reflects on the quality of job you're doing, and sometimes it doesn't. Being okay with the decisions that you make and the person that you are and your intentions and your morals and your integrity um, when the feedback that you get indicates that everybody around you isn't, is hard. And that's, that's, 
I've been learning that. I think a lot of my fellow squadron commanders have too, because I talk to them about this stuff. Tis it season. is difficult yeah. for sure um, to to see folks that you really really care about and to do things to try to make their situations better. Um, to see them not internalize that the way that it's intended, uh, right. or to see them kind of miss that, or just, or even just to see them struggling, to see the efforts that you have made to improve their quality of life or diminish the amount of suffering that they go through just not be effective in their eyes is, is hard for sure. And to kind of be okay with that and just sit in that with them and, and yeah. continue to work on it is difficult. It's a leadership challenge and it's a, it's, it's a personal challenge for sure. So that's definitely been kind of on the front burner. You're, you're learning stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, you get, people that give you feedback you get people that remind you that you don't know everything that you have blind spots for sure and that all the people around you have blind spots and imperfections and, and embracing that is that's a, that's an ongoing process that i think all of us deal with imperfectly for the entirety of our lives but it's been highlighted to me recently so well yeah that's a it's definitely like you said highlighted and uh a tough thing to navigate i mm-hmm. would imagine my hat's off to you for that because it's <laughs> Well, and, and you know, I signed up for it, and I wouldn't yeah. want to be anyplace else. I love my job. I love, and and for that reason, you know, it is kind of easy um, to be comfortable in a role that you know, and just kind of have a routine, and and um, and not deal with some of those things, and not be challenged in that way. I I wouldn't trade it for the world. Right on. What have you read that we should read? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I read a lot, and I. I give my kids a lot of pressure to read too. So, I mean, I, I don't know, boy, I don't know that there's one answer to that. I'll tell you that this is my process. Okay. Um, I, I make a point of reading, of, of alternating between, of always reading at least one thing and sometimes two, of alternating between um, something that is work-related or management-related or process improvement-related. There's gotcha. kind of a, that and classics. So okay. I, I do try to get into classic literature um, and read a lot of that, too, because I think there's a lot of lessons there and, and a lot of challenges there. And sometimes I'll alternate the the work side of that, the management side of that for spiritually related reading or just some kind of academic topic like economics or okay. um, history. Um, and there's great books across the board with that. I think that what I would recommend relative to reading is that paradigm. Uh, I think that there are people who just will read everything that they can on management and leadership, or there are people who will mm-hmm. read, you know, just about history. Um, but I don't think that there's folks who, who most people I know don't strive for a wide breadth right. of, of what right. they're reading right now. I'm reading a book by Graham green called the human factor. Um, and I just got done with, um, which one was it? It's up there. Oh, I read, um, the Patient Will See You Now, which is kind of a, okay. uh, a hospital management book. Really, really good book on uh, processes. Uh, recently read the Checklist Manifesto for the second time on the, the work side. But I think that there is a lot of value in reading literature when it comes to writing, when it comes to communication, when it comes to just insight about the human condition um, mm-hmm. that maybe you don't get out of you know the, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force's recommended reading list for leadership. Right. Uh, but there's definitely value in that, too. So um, I try to always have something, a, a foot in each pool. And what I found out is that rereading them at different points in your life, you get different nuggets. Oh, there's no of, doubt oh about gosh. that. Yeah, I recently, fairly recently, reread um, uh, Kill a Mockingbird, which oh, is wow. totally different yeah. as a parent than it is when you have to read it in middle school. <laughs> um, the, the whole perspective of the book is written differently when you read it as a parent. And it, it was, yeah, really positive. So I kind of push my children in that direction. My daughter just got done with Don Quixote, which is a, a, a really heavy lift for you know, a freshman in high school. But mm-hmm. the, just the idea of challenging yourself to read something that's super hard to read, that makes you like not sure, I think, of like The Sound and the Fury. Um, you know, when you read that book, you're not sure if you're capable of reading that book. It's <laughs> really, really difficult to read. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just value in that. Whether you like the book or you don't, challenging yourself in that way. It's just a, a way that most people, I think, don't challenge themselves. Right. Um, I you, don't, agree. you don't tend to tax your reading level and see if this is something that you can actually digest and understand most of the time. And there's value in that. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense because, you know, by the time most of us are, are ready to sit down and spend a couple minutes reading. You don't want to work at it. Yeah, you're, you're 
your brain is tired from the day in, and that's the one thing that you definitely, how many people really exercise, Right. you know, right. we're so big on, you know, physical health, which is yeah. obviously great as well, but definitely mental health. And, and you have to pace yourself yeah. there too. I mean, I, I certainly don't like only read really, really difficult to read thousand page books that are right. kind of, but it's definitely important to include it in the mix. And when you get done with one of those books, you feel exhausted and you need to throw in some brain candy or some fun reads or, or yeah. something that's written at a sixth grade level. But um, I think <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with things that are written at a sixth grade level. Lots of great books. Um, I think of the Checklist Manifesto is a great one um, from a leadership perspective that mm. is super easy to understand and read. Um, but there's still lots of great lessons in there. Tipping Points, another one. That's a great leadership book, great kind of uh, management book, but you know it's, it's an easy read, it's a fun read. And for the for the listener, we're sitting in Colonel McCarthy's office, and he's got a bookshelf that is absolutely full of just all these books that he's been rambling off. So got a great library at home yeah. too. Oh wow, yeah, awesome. library at home is nice. <laughs> okay, so what motivates you? We've kind of already circled the wagon on this, but yeah, we have. I mean, I think we we talked about the the people part of it. Um, you know, I, I think I'm a curious guy. I, I just like learning. I like kind of having my brain stimulated, and that that's just the way I'm wired. It's nothing that I do, and so learning stuff is fun um, and motivating to me. Um, you know, when I kind of identify something that I really don't know that would benefit me, I'm, I'm I like to dig into that. I remember. When I was at Air Staff okay. from 10 to 12, uh, we talked a little bit about the safe messaging stuff, but I didn't know anything about marketing strategies. I didn't know anything about public yeah. affairs guidance. Honestly, I didn't know anything about suicide prevention. I had done my PhD on the, the, the PDHRA, the Post-Deployment Health Reassessment, so I, I knew lots about PTSD. I knew lots about psychometric measures. I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really had to throw myself into literature and learn about, A, just suicide prevention and what was there. But then a lot of the other stuff that I needed to know about, like marketing, like mm-hmm. you know, running a focus group, like public affairs guidance, uh, I didn't know anything about that stuff. And so learning is fun, um, especially when it's learning that comes with application. Um, Absolutely. And, and then you know, when you move into a squadron commander, even a flight command, I was fortunate as a flight commander that uh, the wing commanders I worked for really kind of saw me as a member of the, the wing staff agency and, and somebody who was part of their public health effort. Nice. And so learning, you know, moving from a, I sit on the chair and my patient sits on the couch and we do, you know, one-on-one psychotherapy to kind of a population health model of promoting mental health was, was a, a paradigm shift for me and something I had to learn about. Um, so reading about that stuff, learning, and then just trying the stuff you've learned, applying and seeing what works and what doesn't, it gets me excited. That's fun to do. That's awesome. So the last thing here is, what are three takeaways that uh, we can leave the listener with for them to kind of stew over and, and kind of what your three takeaway messages, I guess, would be? Yeah, I think almost everybody, myself included, has a lot more control over their situation, over the way that they react to it, over the emotions that they feel due to their situation than they recognize most of the time. And the more that folks take deliberate control of their own emotions and their own internal dialogue and their own situation and the reactions that they have to it, the more successful that they'll be and the more comfortable in their own skin that they'll be and the more they'll enjoy their own lives, which is really more important right. than, than right. occupational success. Um, so I think that that internal locus of control, uh, if you're ever feeling like you're out of control, if you're ever feeling like there's nothing you can do to improve your situation, you're not doing it right. Um, and you know, right. you can ask for help with that. and the, that's a great thing to do, but you don't necessarily have to. I mean, really, it starts with you. And even if you ask for help, folks are going to give you suggestions. But in the end, they're things that you're going to have to implement by yourself under your own locus of control. So I think that that's um, an important thing. And on the flip side of that, when you do respond the wrong way, when you do make a mistake, when you do set yourself back, when you do upset the people around you, that's the way it was supposed to be. That's what you had to do to learn that lesson. That, that, that wow. concept that I take of just being a dumb kid really, really applies well for me. You know, I, I, is, I know lots of people who beat themselves up for things that they did when they were children, like little kids, mm-hmm. six, seven years old. And when you take a step back and think about it, it's ridiculous. It's silly. All kids make stupid mistakes. 
but people carry that stuff with them, like literally from that age. Yeah. But <laughs> almost everybody carries stuff with them. I mean, I'll give you a, a real life example for me. I was in a staff meeting with the boss the other day, like literally yesterday, two doors down from my office. Um, and she asked me a question and I just framed it in a way that was a little more casual and used a term that was maybe a little more crass than I needed to. And I carried that back with me to the office and I had some negative feelings and I beat myself up for a little bit. And really all I needed to do was say, if you don't like the way that that came out, don't do it that way again. Yeah. That was a lesson I needed to learn from that. And I won't. Uh, and I didn't carry it with me for very long, but I could have. Right. But I carried it with me for longer than I needed to. I beat myself up for several hours about it and worried about it. And it was unnecessary. It was, I, I did a dumb thing. Um, it wasn't because I was wrong. It wasn't because I was anything other than just a dumb kid and I needed to learn that lesson. And a lot of times what I've found is you are internalizing it and you, you're, you're making a big deal of it. Right. But like when I've gone and, you know, apologized or, you know, whatever it is yeah, to that person, they're like, they're what are you talking about? Right. That's not even. Right. Yeah. And another <laughs> principle I apply that's kind of along those same lines and that I share with my patients is, and this is, this is just one of my beliefs that you know, we worry a lot about what other people think and um, what other people feel. But if you think about it, other people's thoughts don't exist. I will never know your thoughts, ever, no matter what you tell me. If you tell me, no, this was a great podcast, or you tell me I botched it. Really, right. deep down, I'm not going to know if you're telling me the truth or you're not. It's Even true. if we plugged yeah. you into a lie detector, we could tell if you were being evasive. But I wouldn't know what the truth is. And I will never know what the truth is. Yeah. Whether you t And if everybody you've made angry or perceived you made angry for your whole life. We had lined up out the door and we walked them in here one after another and they all told you exactly what they were thinking. You still wouldn't know if they were honestly telling you exactly what they were thinking. So whenever you find yourself in somebody else's head, you're making your life more difficult than it needs to be because other people's thoughts don't exist. I love that. I love that. Any last attacks? No, not long. I, I kind of, if we can go a little off script, I was yes. going through your, I, I learned some lessons along the way that are maybe practical and maybe aren't appropriate for this. Um, but you, uh, where was it? It was one of the questions about um, the greatest lessons you've learned. Um, oh. and, and you might've even asked it. I learned just along the way, and I don't know if this is value added and you can cut it or paste it in a different place, but just a few things financially Okay. That I wish I had known when I came in. Yeah, let's. That, let's that made, would have made a huge difference. Um, you know, and especially when you're in the Air Force. Oh my gosh. The, the, the tuition assistance, the, you can get yourself in so much trouble with student loans in such a big hurry. Right. And it's unnecessary. Like there are other ways. Student loans are one of the greatest ways to change the trajectory of your lifelong socioeconomic status that there are. Education is a great way to change your trajectory and student loans are a great way to change it in the opposite direction. Right. right. Um, the other thing that really just is, was mind boggling to me when I looked at it. Um, and this was, you know, I, I, I made the mistake a number of times early on. Um, but mortgages, the difference between a 15 year mortgage and a 30 year mortgage is so astonishing. 30 year mortgages are for suckers and will keep you poor. If you look at the amortization table, when you take a 15-year mortgage, you pay two-thirds to principal, one-third to the bank. When you look at a 30-year mortgage, you pay one-third to principal, two-thirds to the bank. And so it's half the length, but two-thirds the cost, and especially in the military, yeah. but across the board, because you get lower interest rates with a 15-year mortgage, and you pay it off more quickly, so you pay less interest, so you're not accruing. The difference in payment, 15 to 30 year, isn't 50%. Like... But the, that one thing, if you do it over the course of a lifetime, if you buy a house, just that one thing will completely change where you end up at right. the end of your life to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I just saw a really good friend of mine last week. He's an 85-year-old retired pilot. Mm -hmm. And he said that exact same thing. We were talking about building wealth and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. He goes, Lance... Um, your life is really going to change when you actually pay off that house. That's when you're really going to start yep. seeing the difference. There's no doubt about it. And if you pay it off 15 years earlier, 15 years of a house payment, and it, yeah, it's there's even more to it than that. I mean, really, right. when you dig right. into it, and I don't want to get too in the weeds, but just that one thing makes, when it, when it occurred to me, and I looked at the amortization tables and looked at how long it was going to pay off a house, and we actually moved in that direction and got it, and then you're like, oh, there's lower interest rates, and there's a lot of other benefits, especially if you're moving around. Or, 
Um, if you do everything else exactly the same, you, you, you put the same amount into savings and you, you, know, you do or you don't do your TSP or you invest in stocks or you don't, if you do, whatever you do, you do. If you just never take a 30 year, you only take a 15 year. Yeah, it's, uh, it was, it's crazy what kind of difference that makes. Nice. I hadn't thought about that. So now I'm going to go do some, you know, applications to, to make sure that I can switch mine to a 15 year. Yeah. So thanks for mentioning that. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, it was the one thing that my wife and I kind of realized and then just tried and did. It changed everything. It, all of a sudden, there was no debt. And how much more less stressful right. is that? Well, that changes your whole life. Oh, yeah. That changes your whole life. I mean, there, was, there were periods in my life when I did have six figures of student loan debt and I did have credit card debt. And we had 30-year mortgages. And we, you know, tried to be smart and weren't reckless and did all the things they tell you to do, you know, diversified portfolio, put money into the TSP. Um, but a 30-year mortgage, uh, to me, is like the one decision you can make financially that I don't hear a lot of people recommend that is just completely paradigm-changing. Yeah, I hadn't heard it either, so I'm... I mean, if you think about it, yeah. on in the military context, you stay somewhere four years, Right. You're in the hole on a 30-year mortgage. You're like probably above what the mortgage value was, really. You, if, if you paid off anything, it's like two or $3,000. Yeah. Which, it's nothing. Which is a realtor fee. Right. Yeah. In the context of a 15-year mortgage, you've paid off almost 20% of your mortgage. And if you rent for one PCS cycle, so you, you have a, somebody move in and they rent your house, it's more than halfway paid off. If you stay in it yeah. for a four-year assignment and you rent for one assignment, your house is more than halfway paid off. So for most houses, that's six figures worth of equity. Yeah. Versus at eight years on a 30-year mortgage, you maybe you're starting to see five, ten thousand dollars of equity in your house. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for sharing that part. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's uh, it was definitely helpful for us. So I don't know if that fits in with the flow of our conversation or if you can cut it and paste it somewhere, but uh, it was definitely something that I wish somebody had told me when I was 25 and thinking about buying my first house. Well, the way that this whole thing has been working so far is I edit the little stuff, but uh, big pieces, big nuggets like that, even if it fits or not. Yeah, that's cool. We wherever, just throw it in there. It goes, it goes. The, the people, people either listen to it or they don't. Right. And, it, you know, in a normal conversation, we bounce around you bounce around bit. all the time. Right. So that's that works great. That's cool. Colonel McCarthy, thank you so much for your Yeah, time. thanks for coming over. I really fun. appreciate I, it. Uh, I, uh, I've enjoyed the chat and I've enjoyed all of the Fairchild University stuff too. I think, you know, like I said. Good stuff over there for your interview. Thanks. I really appreciate it. So that's it. This is uh, the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. Again, I'm your host, Master Lance Haas. If you have a show idea or anybody that you would like to hear from on this show, please contact us at refuelteamfairchild at gmail.com.